Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi everyone and welcome to My Millennium Money Medical. My name is Dev Raga and I'm your host and in this episode we will continue to answer more listener questions. This is part two of the Q&A session. Now, this episode starts from question nine. If you wanted to learn more about question one to eight, listen to the previous episode just released. Let's get started. If you want me to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. And for those of you that are new to the channel, remember the three main aims, education, empowerment and entertainment. Question nine comes from Emily, who asks, are medical specific financial advisors, example, and I won't mention specific names, are they worth it versus more general financial advisors? Now, that's an interesting question. I've done an episode on this in the past life as Devraga Personal Finance in episode 46. Check it out. But that was more about whether financial advisory firms are worth it or not. But here's my two cents about this. I feel that a role of a financial advisor is to assess your overall situation and also formulate a long-term plan based on your risk profile. And part of this is looking at current liabilities, investments and net worth, you know, looking at your superannuation, what do you want to achieve with your money and assets, and what are your insurance situation. And there's a lot more nitty-gritty things that, you know, people need to look at from a financial advisory firm point of view. So I think a lot of people expect financial advisors to tell you exactly what to do. I don't think that's their main role. The biggest advantage of a financial advisor, I think, is they're able to hold your hand so you don't make emotional decisions based on market conditions. That's where their role primarily lives and sits, and that's in my humble opinion, in addition to providing a long-term financial plan, et cetera, et cetera. So if you think your knowledge is fantastic, you know what you want and where you're going, and you have steady hands when it comes to investments and are well insured, you may not get much value from a financial advisory firm. That's a brave statement, I know. But if you're a nervous investor, then maybe you need a bit of direction. This may be on an ongoing relationship basis, or maybe just a once-off or yearly plans. Now, to Emily's question about specific medical financial advisory firms, are they worth it, or healthcare-specific financial advisory firms? And that's a very specific question, and here's my thought process on that. I think there's some value in dealing with advisors or firms specific for healthcare workers or medical professionals, and here's why. Number one is business loans. 
Medical businesses or healthcare businesses work slightly differently because of the regulations and guidelines they need to abide by, which is often a little bit more stringent than other types of businesses. But the income stream, as a result, is very reliable and it's usually very high. Number two is goodwill. How do you assess this in a medical practice is very tricky. You need expert eyes on it. Now, I've done episode 220 specifically about practice ownership, where I discuss goodwill in detail. Number three is practice fit out. Depending on what type of practice it is, it can be allied health, can be medical, can be dental. If you're starting a new practice, you need to know the ins and outs of this type of financial dealings. Number four is debt management. Managing debt is quite specific to healthcare workers and medical and dental professionals. Number five is retirement planning. Medical and dental professionals or healthcare workers can often work for long periods of time compared to other professions. And therefore, tax advantaged accounts are preferred. You may need a once-over with someone who knows exactly what they're doing. Number six is insurance. Now, this is a minefield. Whether you get own occupation insurance or any occupation insurance, what about HIV, hepatitis, B and C and other bloodborne virus diseases? What about cover for them? This is a clinical risk, which is unique to medical professionals or healthcare workers in general. So you need advice on this. So if you put two and two together, I think the term worth it in quotations is a relative term. So if you're simply a PAYG employee, I don't see much value in it potentially, especially if you know what you're doing, but you need to accept that you may not know what you may not know. That's a risk, which you need to assess and work out for yourself. Now, if you're a business owner or a practice owner or independent practitioner, I think it's a bit risky not to have a medical specific advisor, whether it be for tax or accounting purposes or financial advisory firms that focus on healthcare workers, dental practices, allied health practices or medical practices, because you only get one chance really in business. And from a structuring, from an asset protection point of view, I think it's really important. So it would definitely be wise to get some advice if you're in that bracket. Remember, my podcast is mainly about personal finance. I rarely focus on business finance because I'm not really that interested in it and I don't think I'm very good at it. So you need to keep that in perspective at all time when listening to these episodes. So thanks, Emily, for that great question. Question 10 from May, who wants to know about the new rules for family trust funds. What can you do if you already have one? Now, I discussed this in episode 227 with Andrew Haber from Altus Financial. Now, the important thing here is, as far as I know, it's not set in stone, and it's a draft guidance from the ATO. And here's the crux of it. In the past, the trustee could distribute funds to the beneficiaries, and as part of ordinary family dealings, which is the most common type of trust distributions that we get. The money may not hit their account, or even if it did, they may not economically benefit from it, they meaning the beneficiaries. Now the ATO are guiding or suggesting that the beneficiaries have to materially benefit from the distributions. Now here are three things they focus on. Number one is reimbursement agreements in section 100A of the income tax assessment in 1936. Now the exception for ordinary family dealings or commercial dealings, as well as identifying arrangements of concern. So if you're interested, go and read that section 100A of the income tax assessment act 1936. 
Number two is Division 7A. Now, this is way too complex for me to discuss about in this episode. It's way beyond the scope here. And number three is arrangements where adult children who have low tax rates are made entitled to trust income in circumstances where their parents retain control over and enjoy the economic benefits of that income. So the crux of the matter is, should someone who enjoys the economic benefit of a distribution be allowed to distribute that income to a lower taxed individual? That's what it comes down to. The problem has always been, we've always done it this way, is no longer an excuse. Now, I'm unaware that this has been set in stone. I know that it was in the consultation paper up until April 29th, 2022, and I'm not sure exactly what happened after that. I looked on the ATR website about this, and it still says draft consultation paper. If anyone has any more information on this, don't hesitate to contact me. Question 11. Sammy asks, I'm a trainee about to finish advanced training and embark on a PhD. To continue earning money, I plan to supplement my PhD scholarship with locum work. I assume Sammy is a doctor. Can you provide any tips for success and perhaps any financial pitfalls associated with locum work? Now, first of all, congrats on finishing up an advanced training position. It's, it's a job well done and embarking on your PhD. Now, doing a PhD is a definition of opportunity cost, where time spent on that, although very fulfilling for personal and professional development reasons, can often set people back several years in their financial journey. And also, Sammy, I've just done an interview series with Ryan from One Medical Locum Agency Group, and I'm going to be releasing that just before Christmas. I think you should watch out for that episode. We talk about the ins and outs of locuming and how some of the locums are structured. But here's my two cents, some of the good things about becoming a locum. Number one is it creates variety in your professional life. When working as a locum, you get to choose where you work and what type of work you do and potentially how much you earn. And this leads to the next advantage, flexibility. That's number two. I used to locum on the side during my training days and I chose the shifts I wanted and I chose which specialty. I chose when I wanted to work. And I had to fulfill my permanent contract hours, of course, with various health networks, but it also allowed me some free time to locum, which means make extra money. I think nowadays you need to inform your training organisation if locuming while you're training. And this is due to the safe working hours rule, but back then it was free for all. In fact, I would often locum my own permanent hours when I went on leave because they couldn't find any replacements. Shout out to Neurosurgery, Royal Melbourne Hospital. Thanks for paying me twice. Number three is financially, it pays the bills and then some. Locum work pays way better than permanent shifts, sometimes twice as much, sometimes three times as much. So leverage it to your advantage. Let's face it, registrars and junior doctors, they get screwed all the time in the public health system, from low pay to high working hours and more demands and more stress. So you kind of need to supplement the poor income to pay the bills. I don't think things have changed that much. It's probably gotten a bit worse, to be honest. Here are some bad things about becoming a locum. There is no stability in terms of career. In this case, Anon wants to do a PhD, so it doesn't really matter. You may have to expand your scope and compromise on your areas of expertise. So if Anon is a cardiologist doing a PhD, for example, on some super specific subspecialty, then locuming just in cardiology may not pay the bills too much. So they need to be flexible. Here are some financial tips for locuming during your PhD work. Make sure you register for GST if required, especially if planning to earn more than $75,000. Remember, GST is not applicable to health services for services that are Medicare rebatable services. But if you're a locum and you're trading your time for income, you are liable for GST. 
a lot of locums initially don't register for GST. They forget about it because they say, oh, I'm not going to make $75,000 a year. But then they earn more than $75,000 a year because, of course, the money is great and then get slugged with GST. Now, it's on you if you don't register GST. So to be honest, just register for GST anyway if you're eligible. It's just easier. Just do it. Make sure your invoices are correct and up to date and make sure you account for taxes. It's a very common problem that locums do. Locum fees are often paid in gross amounts, so it's up to you to work out your tax rates and deduct them. Now, personally, I'd always deduct 50% of the locum fees and keep it away for tax because I know my tax is not going to be 50%. And anything less than that, if I pay tax, let's say 35-40%, then I've just saved a good 10-15%. to Now, I've discussed this before in other episodes on how I do this, how I account for taxes. Have a listen to one of my previous episodes. If you don't want to listen to them, open the transcripts page, link in the show notes, and do a search about it. It just makes it a lot easier. Now, I think locuming is a great opportunity to expand scope of practice, but more importantly for juniors to try various hospitals and networks to see what they like and what they don't like and build important departmental and medical workforce relationships. I can't stress that enough. That's really important. It's not unusual for medical workforce to have their favourites when it comes to shifts, especially those staff who never say no and accept shifts at short notice. It's your entry point into the door of a hospital, so to speak, and word of mouth is really important. And yes, I've always got the shifts that I've always asked for. Question 12 from Anon. I'd like to know about transferring property to children without stamp duty. Now, the broader question here is, what are some of the ways property can be transferred to family members in Australia? And I'll get to the stamp duty part of it as well. And the short answer to that question is, I don't think it's possible to avoid stamp duty, even if you did it by the book. There are two main ways property can be transferred to family members. Number one is you can gift it. You can gift property to family members, but this usually involves filling out paperwork. And there's also the following offices you'll need to deal with, the state revenue service, the title office, the transfer of land documents and get your lawyer or property conveyancer. You've got to get them involved early. And there are costs associated with the paperwork processing. And of course, there is no money being transferred between the family members. Now, there may be CGT implications as well, especially if the property is not their principal place of residence. The other way to transfer property is to just sell it to your family member. You could simply sell it at the market value. You can give it at a better deal if you were to sell it in the open market, but you may simply sell it at a significant discount. Now, stamp duty has to be paid, and this is calculated on market value of the property, not the sale price. That is, if you sell your home for a cheaper price and market value is higher, the stamp duty is calculated on the market value. And capital gains tax will also likely apply if it's not your principal place of residence. Now, do you need to get a formal property valuation even if gifting or selling to the family member? And the answer is yes. And this is what the ATO says. You should obtain a property valuation from a professional valuer or work out the market value yourself using reasonably objective and supportive data. This can include the price paid for very similar properties that were sold at the time in the same location. So here's a summary of the fees for the seller or the gifter. Number one, capital gains tax. Now you've got to refer to my episode 64, where I do a deep dive into all of the capital gains issues. Number two is valuation costs, usually around 300 to 900 bucks. Number three is legal fees. Now this costs are variable depending on whether you use a solicitor or a conveyancer. Here's a summary of the fees for the buyer. Number one is stamp duty. So to answer the question, no, I don't think you can escape stamp duty or capital gains tax. Basically, even if you sell it or gift it to your family members, it's still considered as a transfer of ownership and the government still wants their money. Number two is legal fees. Again, variable costs depending on whether you use a solicitor or a conveyancer. 
Now, there are two situations where you may be able to transfer property without some hefty fees like capital gains tax, but I don't think stamp duty can be avoided. And those two situations are, if you acquired the property before 20th of September 1985, you are CGT exempt. Why? Because this is the date CGT actually came into effect in Australia. And number two is, if the property being transferred to the family member is main residence or principal place of residence, as usual, nothing special here, you're exempt from capital gains tax on principal place of residence anyway. Now let's take a quick break and when I come back, we'll continue to answer some more listener questions. Some great interesting questions on this episode. So well done team. Be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now, welcome back. We've got a few more questions from listeners. Question 13 is from Laura, who says, I think it's more of a statement, would love to hear a combo episode with my millennial career about how to nail panel interviews. Sounds like a plan. Need to think about doing a combo episode at some point. And here's a caveat. Now, I'm a doctor, so I haven't really, uh, you know, applied for positions other than medical doctoring. And generally, medical interviews are relatively easy compared to other professions. I mean, if you look at engineering, law, allied health, pharmacy, their interviews are far more structured and far more legit. Medical interviews, I think, are relatively easy. Now, I've sat in on allied health interviews, pharmacy interviews, and also nursing interviews, and I think they're way harder and there's way more scrutiny. Now, I've probably sat for one proper medical interview in my life, and that was during my internship. Shout out to Royal Melbourne Hospital. I actually prepared for that interview, and I did reasonably well. So I'm probably not the best expert when it comes to interviews, but I think there are certain things that I can see in other doctors especially, which perhaps tells me and gives me clues on their overall performance and hireability and moldability as a team member. Now, I want to discuss this concept of moldability. Now, I'm not sure if this is a real concept in careers or HR circles, but it's something I have used and lived by. As a doctor, I think it's extremely important to be versatile and adaptable, especially early in your career. If you're too stubborn, too stiff, and are not adaptable to changing environments and situations, it's not a great trait to have. Don't confuse moldability with trying to break rules or bend the rules. That's not what moldability is. 
It's generally about being helpful and being able to adapt to various situations, often spontaneously and often at short notice. To highlight this principle, let's use an example. Amy is an RMO year two, that's resident medical officer year two, and working in the surgical wards. She's been contacted by medical workforce about her colleague who's fallen ill and has to go back home earlier during her shift. Therefore, the cover shift from 6pm to 10pm is now vacant. Remember, the colleague felt ill, so the colleague had to go home early and the colleague was the one that was doing the cover shift. Medical workforce are wondering if Amy can help cover this shift, that is four hours. Amy had no plans that evening. Medical workforce have confirmed extra payment for the extra hours worked. Amy explains to medical workforce that she is not keen to do the shift and would like to go home on time, that is at 6pm. Unfortunately, it's only two hours since the shift starts, that is, since the cover shift starts, so it's only 4pm. Amy explains she's not able to cover the shift and she's keen to get home. She hands in a pager to a covering registrar who now has to do the registrar's job, and we all know a surgical registrar job is quite tough and quite demanding in terms of hours and the number of uh, workload there is, and now the poor surgical registrar also has to do the resident's job. The night RMO is called in to come out two hours earlier for the shift and they've agreed. So overall, the shift somehow gets covered by the surgical registrar and the night RMO coming in a bit earlier. So what are some of the issues here? Amy has demonstrated she's not really adaptable to the changing workforce environments of her job. Now, remember, Amy is definitely well within her rights to decline to stay back to help. Amy has not done anything wrong at all but the optics of the situation is not great. Meanwhile, the night RMO has helped out by coming in early and starting their shift early. In this case, the night RMO was contactable and was a bit more adaptable to the situation. Now, again, Amy has not done anything wrong. The moldability quality, though, suffers a little bit. It's also important to note, Amy is under no obligation to donate any hours for free to the public health system. Now, let's use another example to highlight the same principle. Amy, different Amy, is a corrections medical officer. She's just been employed in full-time capacity. During orientation, she's been explained some of the policies and procedures of the prison system and justice, health, etc. Upon commencing her work, other doctors have noted some things which are not within the values of teamwork. In one instance, Amy is consistently placing the scripts for patients in the wrong pile. The OSTP, the Opioid Substitution Treatment Plan scripts, need to be separated and placed in a different pharmacy pile compared to non-OSTP scripts. Amy just kind of just lumps all of them together because that's how the printer does it. It'd be nice for the software and printer system to be improved, but there is some scope for that in the future, but not at this stage. In the interim, it's expected the doctors separate out the scripts and it's a manual work for the doctor. Despite Amy securing a position in the corrections environment and following her passion for providing care for the most vulnerable people, she has not adapted and moulded into the current system. She has a valid point, though, that the systems issue with software and printer states, but rather than offering solutions, her response has been, it's a systems issue, fix it, until then, I will do what I'm doing now. Now, Amy has demonstrated, yeah, she does her work well, she prints out the scripts, but she's not mouldable and is not open to adaptability and working in a team environment. Again, Amy correctly identifies that it's a systems issue. But unfortunately, no matter how much you do well in your interviews, my point here is, if you behave like this in the workplace, it's unlikely you will go far in the healthcare industry or any industry. Question 14 is from David. 
Hi, Dev. I'm a final year medical student. I just wanted to say I love your podcast. I've binged your first 100 episodes over the last two weeks alongside some of your recent ones and found it really helpful in starting my financial journey. Thanks, David. Appreciate that. I currently have the majority of my savings, which is $10,000 in Spaceship. I've made the decision to invest long-term in VDHD, VAS, and unfortunately my current portfolio on Spaceship is in the red by about $1,000. Should I wait for it to climb up before selling the shares to redistribute my savings to another platform? And if I sell this, am I correct in assuming I can claim the $1,000 as a negatively geared loss to reduce my taxable income? Now, that's a good question. Thanks for listening and please encourage your fellow medical students to learn about finances early in their career. And in fact, if your medical school wants a Dev Raga talk about finances, contact me. I'll do it for free, provided I maintain my anonymity. That's all I need. And it's done all, all online. Now, I've done it for Sydney Children's Hospital. Shout out GP training organisations in Victoria. Shout out Monash Medical School. Shout out and Melbourne Medical School as well and various other organisations. Now, here's my answer to your question. What you're going through is a question, do I sell my losers and buy my winners or do I wait until the market bounces back? I've covered this concept in the episode Asset Allocation in episode 80, if interested. Uh, You may have already listened to it since you binged through the first 100 episodes. Um, So if your investment is of sound quality, I don't think you should sell them. If your investors are bad quality, I think you should sell them. That's as simple as that. I don't know exactly what portfolio in Spaceship you've chosen. I don't know what's in the Spaceship portfolio. I think it's very tech-focused. Um, And I think your direction is choosing a broad-based ETF for the long term, I think is a good strategy and is likely, again, not 100%, but likely to yield a very good result over the long term, 20, 30, 40 years plus. To answer your specific question about negatively gearing your losses, no, that is not what negative gearing is all about. Now, the term negative gearing is predominantly used in the property spheres, but it's actually nowhere to be found in the tax legislation. But this is the way that people describe it. If you have an asset, the expenses associated with that asset is greater than the income generated from that asset, that is called negative gearing unofficially. What you've described of selling the asset as a loss is called a capital loss. And I discussed the concept of capital gains and capital losses in episode 64. You can't claim a capital loss against your general income. But if you make a capital gain, barring some discounts which can be applicable, you will need to add that to the overall assessable income. So I've discussed this concept in detail in episode 94, which is income versus deductions, and also in episode active versus passive income in episode 216. So listen to that if you're interested. So to answer your question, you need to work out what your portfolio is. If your portfolio is good, hang on to it. If your portfolio is bad, then yeah, get out of it. Uh, But overall, sticking to a broad market ETF or index fund, I think that's what I do. Um, It's just easy. It's simple. It's cost effective. It's cheap. The fees are cheap. And uh, it's simple. That's the main thing. Now, I think this is the last question. Question 15 from Anon, who asks, Maxia Wallet, is it worth it or not? This is a great question. I actually learned something about this from this question. As I looked into it further, I actually didn't know about Maxia Wallet. Uh, I package with Maxia actually for one of my health networks. Um, most of their stuff is done online and most of the other salary packaging firms also do things online. And traditionally though, you submit claims online, you need to print off statements, receipts and upload them, which can be okay, but a rather messy way of doing things. And I was speaking to a surgical registrar quite recently. He found the whole process of salary packaging quite arduous and painful. Uh, his words, pain in the ass, up to the point that they actually can't be bothered to salary package, which, um, you know, throwing money down the drain, but they're just too busy. Now, what Maxia Wallet is 
basically is the money is automatically credited to one of their cards, which I think is a MasterCard tap and go. And you use that card just like any other card, living, meal and entertainment expenses, etc., are added to the card. And as you use them, it determines which fund the money goes out of. Of course, if you have, let's say, $6,000 in living expenses claims and $1,500 in meal and entertainment claims and you go to a restaurant, it determines automatically which funds to use based on the classification of the expense. How does that work? And how does the card know which fund to take money out of? Have you ever wondered about that? Well, they're called merchant codes. So when merchants start accepting credit card payments, they need to get a merchant category code. And these codes specify the type of merchants they are. So it makes it easier for the ATO as well to keep track of things and also for the business. Now, the credit card companies have the merchant codes and they determine what code belongs to what businesses. Usually, the merchant code stays the same and is consistent long-term, even if the business evolves into other activities, unless they get assigned another code. And the fees charged, I think, depends on the merchant code. So if your business is high risk, you may have to pay higher fees associated with providing the service accepting CC payments. Now, back to the Maxi Wallet. I suspect they use these merchant codes to determine which fund your expenses come out of. This is assuming the merchant code is always accurate, but sometimes it's not. If there isn't enough money left over in one account, for example, meal and entertainment, then it'll automatically take it from the living expenses account. The charge for this service is $4.40 per service per month. So overall, it's likely around 80 to 90 bucks per card if you have two funds within this. And this is in addition to the Maxia administration fee. So this is not inclusive of that admin fee. The advantage of the Maxia wallet though, it seems that you can have additional cards and you can give it to family members if you wanted to, but there are charges associated with this, which is $1.10 per benefit per month per additional card. So it's around 12 to 20 bucks per year. It seems people have the Maxi Wallet can be part of the Everyday Savings Program, which I think is a discount program specifically for these cardholders. And I think it's more for local offers with restaurants and other small businesses accessible via the Maxia app. So is it worth it? I don't have it. Mainly because I didn't know much about it before this question. I may think about it. Uh, for me, at the moment, I simply upload my statements every year and that seems to do the trick. The administrative burden for me is not that high. And I think if you think your time is extremely valuable and you do find it quite boring to do the paperwork, uh, I think it's completely worth it. I suggest you calculate your income per unit time and then go from there. I suspect a lot of healthcare workers just do paperwork during their lunch break at work. So it's kind of time that's already paid anyway, that you're using anyway. So um, of course, everything is an opportunity cost. Now that's about it for this episode. This is part two of Q&A session. Uh, Some interesting questions. Hopefully, listeners have found this relatively useful, um, particularly that Maxi Wallet one. I actually found out a lot about it uh, during my research to answer this question. Now, remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you may be using, or please leave a five-star review on all of the platforms. That's even better. And please leave a positive review. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to the podcasts and these podcasts are free and I spend a lot of time trying to prepare and upload these episodes. Um, you know, there's a fair bit of work that goes into this. I really appreciate all the support that I get and please spread the word and please give those ratings and reviews a go. My name's Dev Raga from My Millennium Money Medical and until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. 
This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.